Once upon a time. Welcome to Australian Book Lovers. Your destination for imagination. And a big warm welcome to everyone, all of our Australian book lovers, listeners, and a huge thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers podcast. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, a.k.a. V.E. Patton, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, reader and one of your co-hosts for today's podcast. Coming to you today, not from my usual place, but today from Watharong country, that where the, the lands are down in the southeast of Melbourne. So also called Watawurrung and uh, yeah, I've just completely missed that, that Louie. <laughs> <laughs> to cut that bit out, Darren. <laughs> and here's my co-host. <laughs> and I am Darren Kazanko, a science fiction or dystopian science fiction and horror author, avid reader, and one of your other co-hosts and co-founders of the Australian Book Lovers website. And of course, this wonderful podcast that is always fun to do. And today I'm coming, as always, from Corner Country. Excellent. And it's we've had exciting news here in Victoria today, the end of lockdown is number six is imminent so we're feeling pretty good about things uh and they're opening up so yeah it might not be a fabulous weekend weather-wise but it's a great feeling well the, yes i mean is, this is episode number now correct me wrong this is episode number 35 isn't it it is indeed it is indeed and it, at the time of recording yeah we're in a real strange place and i guess one could even call it a bit exciting but it's definitely i think we're about to step into well a, a few unknowns in the next uh, month or so with yes. supposed international travel opening the end of lockdowns the the nation reaching a point of you know adequate or, or at least yeah relatively adequate vaccination levels yes and it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how we move forward in time from this point because will we even ever have a lockdown situation again um well you know, they hope we not getting, that's the thing isn't it fingers crossed absolutely uh, yeah. but yes we'll, we'll definitely see but it is a little bit uh, daunting exciting there's a, definitely a case for nerves because yeah again unknown territory uh yeah. it seems to everything seems to be rushed and uh, i still don't know how everything's going to work and no, i think it no, kind of helps tricky. if you know exactly how things are going to work yes uh, yeah. need, you know but that's for a, another topic of discussion for because another today, topic of discussion we might need to be having a more political or health-based uh podcast but it's all about the writing today absolutely and look uh, some news that I thought that I would share is, yes, I did succumb and I have booked into another writing course. And, uh, okay. And uh, you yeah. know what that means? <laughs> what? That means time for the news. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> did it, did it, did it. So, yes, big news for me is that I have booked into uh, another writing course, which is has is called Fantasy Science Fiction and Other Things, I think, um, by Pamela Hart. So it's through the Australian Writer Centre. But what I really wanted to share with you is my homework is that I have to read 
J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. So 15 pages of oh. all about fairies. So how tough is that for homework? Well, I, I can't say I've read too many books about fairies. <laughs> okay. All right, well, but, imagine uh, you were a fantasy writer. I'd like to know the origins of the fairies. Uh, yeah, but well, think about it. If this was a, a course on writing or, you know, uh, different ways to write horror stories, they might say to you, you know, read 15 pages on Stephen King or who's that other, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, and so for a fantasy writer to say your homework is to read a bit of Tolkien, it's like, Okay, <laughs> this is oh, fabulous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be super cool. I've just got in my head fairies and my, you know, my internal representation of fairies. And, uh, it, yeah, so, so you put me in a uh, mentally, uh, in a visually <laughs> in the, uh, strange yes, fairies garden can, of with, course, like, you know, the little Yes, the little they can be Tinkerbell Disney's, but they can also be yeah, that's and evil. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, so there you go. So that was a little did, bit of did they Did they originate uh, from hallucinations back in the day? Like as far as the you know the fairies that oh, crept into literature. I haven't done my homework yet, so I can't tell you. Oh, well, I have go. to look. I, oh, I did. I did do a little bit of research on the origins of Halloween. So when we oh, okay, record yes. our uh, next podcast closer to Halloween, I'll be happy to uh, yeah go into it a little bit further. So sounds yeah. good. But yes, yeah, so when does the course uh, start for you? So it starts on the fifteenth of November for five Mondays. And look, one of the things that I am kind of I'll say silver linings from the pandemic or the panini, as we're supposed to call it now. Uh, my daughter tells me most people don't call it the P word. They use a different P word. So at her place of business, they, they talk about the panini <laughs> as opposed to the pandemic. Okay. Okay. Uh, but let's, you know, for our listeners, let's just say the pandemic has had some silver linings. And that has been that a number of courses, writing courses run by, you know, people like Australian Writers Centre, those kind of things, which were either in Sydney or Brisbane that I would never get to, are now online. And I'm able to access some of those specifically genre-based courses that really suit me. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I imagine you would be, yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, you know, you mentioned a silver lining to the current, you know, global situation, but I think there's been a really eye-opening experience for me, you know, doing this podcast of yeah. and, and talking with industry specialists, you know, so uh, people from writer centres, etc., and mm-hmm. just learning, you know, that's really opened my eyes to how much really is out there too as far as, you know, yeah. if, if there's a particular course that you feel is going to sharpen your game, I think you'll be able to find it. Here yeah, being, oh, absolutely. Uh, being done yeah. here in Australia. Yep, very much so. So, yes, episode 35, time for some news. I thought I might uh, let our listeners know about some of the new book features. Well, the new books, should I say, that are featured on the website. Uh, So we've got some great titles. And so today we've got everything from some mystery and crime to autobiography to historical fiction and, of course, to science fiction because today is somewhat of a science fiction episode. uh, It is, it is. Yes, featuring a... Very, very talented and unique author by the name of Mr. M.K. Nadal, and we'll be talking of his book. Now, I've completely forgotten how to pronounce it, so did you want to have a try? Oh, it's The Return of the Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil, that's right. Yggdrasil, yes. <laughs> Yggdrasil, yeah, Return of the Yggdrasil. But yeah, yeah so I thought I would uh, yeah, let, let her listen to about some of the really cool books that we've now uh, that have added to our Australian Book Lovers little online website family. So Yes, I'll and we must with... do a count because we've got several hundreds, I think. Are we close to 400 surely by now? I haven't counted for I, ages. I would but say so, yeah. yes. We'll, we'll so do a count later. to choose from, yep. 
Now, for historical fiction lovers out there, uh, this is by an author. This is actually three books of in, all in the same series. Uh, now, it's called The Sisters Saga, and this is by an author called Alison Ferguson. And the, the book one of the, uh, the Sisters Saga is, is called Maiden Maneuvers. Mm-hmm. And Maiden Maneuvers is the first of three in the Sisters Saga, which tells of three sisters and the compromises they must make to reconcile love's delusions with the demands of reality. This historical fiction novella focuses on the elder sister, Henrietta Burbridge, in the early 1800s in colonial Sydney and Calcutta. Henrietta's sisters collect flowers to catalogue and make detailed drawings, but Henrietta is not like them. She lets the petals scatter where they may. So, someone breaking away from the mould there. The by rules, the sunset. yes. Colouring mm. outside the lines. Yes, always good to colour outside <laughs> the lines because you end up doing your own drawings then, you yeah. see. Uh, book two is called Dearest Daughter. Now, Dearest Daughter is the second of three in the Sister Saga, which tells of three sisters and the compromises they must make to reconcile love's delusions with the demands of reality. (laughs) Now, in this short historical fiction novel, the lives of the younger sisters, Rose and Beth Burbridge, are turned upside down by Henrietta's return from India. In colonial Sydney between 1825 to 1835, Henrietta asks why, if matrimony is the bedrock of the family, is it so hard for love to survive marriage? But her sisters must answer a very different question. How much would they trade for matrimony? So definitely, uh, you could say the plot is thickening as we're progressing through this series. Yes. Yes. And that brings us to book three, which is called Widow's Wake. So I don't know if that gives away anything. but uh, So, of course, Widow's Wake is the last of the three in the sister saga. And over the course of a single voyage from Sydney to London in 1847... Henrietta must reconcile the regrets of her past in order to truly cast aside her widow's weeds and embrace the adventures ahead. She is the heroine of the colourful tale she shares with young Mr Morgan Mayhew. However, their 1847 voyage from Sydney to London will be one tale neither will ever divulge. Mm. So, yeah, who knows where this story is going to go, but that is... The Sister Saga, and that is by Alison Ferguson, and you'll find that under our historical fiction genre page. Very good. Now, for something completely different, and I think this one's cool, so I'm really hoping this author will pop on the podcast for a chat. This is a biography, and the title is From French Fries to a Franchise. Ah, yes. Macca's Memoir. Yes, by none other than author Michelle Layett, and I hope I I pronounced that correct. Yes, and she has booked in. I would just say that she's booked in for a chat. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I think, uh, yes, I think listeners, you'll be, when you hear about this one, I think you're definitely going to want to tune in when she comes on board. So I'm going to have so many questions. (laughs) Uh, But from French, sorry, this is a tongue twister too, from French fries to a franchise is a non-fiction memoir. Michelle Layett was one of Australia's pioneering McDonald's female franchisees. Franchisees, Franchisees, yeah. Yeah, that's a word I've never said before in my life. (laughs) She started as a trainee manager in 1982 and became part of a McDonald's experiment to hire from outside the McDonald's family. Do McDonald's put sugar in their buns? Why do they only hire children? How do you buy your own store? And can you make money out of it? Michelle answers all these questions and many more by drawing on her own experiences 
as one of Australia's first female franchisees and also by enlisting the help of an eight-foot-tall plastic clown. <laughs> and that is from French Fries to a Franchise, a Macca's Memoir by Michelle Layard. Now, it's, that sounds like it's uh, going to be a little bit of fun, but the more you look into it, there's actually a lot in there. And I yes. believe uh, Michelle basically became, if uh, like I, I haven't read the book yet, but I know uh, she's uh, one of her co-workers or someone she worked with is now the C- global CEO ah, uh, there of, you go. of McDonald's, uh, something along those lines. So she's definitely been in there from the start from Australia. And I believe the store that she very first began in was here in Adelaide, of all places. Amazing. Something first happens in South Australia. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I just thought I'd have I a think, dig. Uh, because, of course, you had the first writer centre. SA Writers was the first writer centre in, in Australia. So... Many firsts happened over there. Yes, yes. And, and look, I got my... Uh, there was Darren's first panel van happened in South Australia. <laughs> now, that is a momentous uh, event in history. I, I'm sure the and whole I state remember that, that day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we still celebrate it. No, we don't. Uh, but, yeah, very much looking forward to uh, hearing what Michelle has to say. And, you know, for people that want to, you know, especially as we're emerging out of the, you know, back into a world of, of commerce and, and business. It, you know, it's going to be, the timing couldn't be more perfect to talk to someone who has, you know, really become a, a, a superstar in the business world, you mm. know, starting from, mm. you know, humble beginnings in a McDonald's store. So I think that's going to be fantastic. Good. good now, good. how about a little bit of mystery thriller? So I've, 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 yep. we've got, yeah, we've got a title called The River Mouth, and that is by author Karen Herbert. Now, 15-year-old Darren Davies is found face down in the Weymouth River with a gunshot wound to his chest. The killer is never found. Ten years later, his mother receives a visit from the local police. Sandra's best friend has been found dead on a remote Pilbara road, and Barbara's DNA matches the DNA found under Darren's fingernails. When the investigation into her son's murder is reopened, Sandra begins to question what she knew about her best friend. As she digs, she discovers that there are many secrets in a small town and that her murdered son had secrets too. And that is The Rivermouth by Karen Herbert. Uh, sounds, uh, that's a, sounds like a really... Uh, it reminds me straight away, like not the story, but the setting mm-hmm. kind of makes me feel mm-hmm. like dry. You know, mm. that uh, small town... <gasps> we watched that the other night. We're slowly yes. unravelling. It's yes. a good movie, isn't it? It was a good movie, yeah. Eric Banner was pretty damn fabulous. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just talking to a friend the other day saying he uh, definitely deserves bigger and better roles because he, you know, when yeah. it comes to drama, he is fantastic. Yeah, although from all but accounts yes. he chooses, you know, he's pretty careful with choosing his roles and doesn't necessarily choose them for size and that. Um, and he's a Melbourne boy and uh, elected to stay in Melbourne in lockdown. So, yeah, when he did get an opportunity to travel. So, yeah, good on him. Yeah. And he did bring the world, uh, what was his, one of his characters, Poiter. 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 Yes, yes, he did. No no, no staying in a bad mood watching some of his skits. Uh, But but nonetheless, but as far as the serious side of things, that is The River Mouth by Karen Herbert, and you'll find that under our mysteries and thrillers. So it definitely sounds like a small town with lots of uh, perhaps um, secrets to be unraveled, Mm. like Mm. starting a thread and out she comes. Uh, but now, uh, quickly, I'd like to jump to contemporary, mm-hmm. and we've got one a title called "The Fault Lines Founding Liberty" by right. author Sarah Bacala. Now, "The Fault Lines Founding Liberty" explores the tensions inherent in growing up and moving on from faith, 
family and past versions of ourselves. With unanswered questions and hovering guilt, a young woman comes to confront the spectres of her past through dialogue with an unexpected companion. This process is as uncomfortable as it is transformative. Freedom is discovered not by eliminating life's loose ends, nor running away from them, but in gathering them bravely and and continuing to put one foot in front of the other despite everything. A process Mm -hmm. made hopeful in the solidarity of unexpected friendship. And that is The Fault Lines Founding Liberty by Sarah Bacala. And that's actually also available as an uh, audio book on Audible and narrated by the author. Yes, I was going to say, because so Sarah, cool. I think, is from, uh, I'm going to say the wrong thing, She, but she does do uh, audio narration, because I know that she's narrated Hazel Edwards' memoir, and we are chatting to Hazel and Sarah early next ah. year, because uh, yet yeah, we are booked solid till the end of the year. Uh, so, oh, is it Voices Australia? I'll have a, a think about it. Yes, but that's fantastic that she also, of course, naturally, does her own voices. Yeah, well, and uh, I'm going to be tinkering trying to do some recording as well, but I think I'm going to probably end up begging somebody to do it because I can't stand <laughs> can't stand my own voice. And, I'm not, and as you can hear, I get tongue-tied on the best of days. I can't but imagine sitting love there reading to hear, Once you get into it and if you have a bit of a practice, you know, don't give up so easily. You might find that it's, uh, yeah, better than you think. Wow. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, well, Voices now, of Today, I would like that's to jump she's from. Because yep. to, sorry. Sarah's from Voices of Today. So, that's what was that? She does some, Voices of Today, that's where Sarah does some of her audio work and we'll be chatting to her, as I say, early next year. Hmm. Ah, it's Voices of the Day, one, Voices one of, of the today. platforms where you can, of ah. today. Is that one of the platforms where you can or, like purchase or, or Production, narration and cover design they do. Skill? So, yeah, I think that's the... the oh, the wonderful. Code. Yeah. Well, anyway, we might have to we'll, do a we'll little bit special on that one. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because it yes. was very interesting because well, we talked about audio and lo and behold, the very next person who emails us is somebody who does audio. It would be great to get a bit of a you know inside scoop on on the process and yes. and some of the tricks of the trade and yeah. uh, especially you know for example for someone like myself and, and other people out there that might be looking at venturing into the world of uh, recording their own audio book or maybe even a portion of their book for for an audio sample because uh, uh, having not met anybody yet that's you know done it uh, professionally mm. it's, i mm. think that'll be a great opportunity to pick someone's brain so i'm definitely gonna have a list of questions ready there <laughs> very good now because today of course we are heading into i guess you could say the science fiction realm well we are heading into the science fiction realm yes i thought i'd finish uh the, the little bit of uh, book news with regards to the latest titles on the website with a couple of science fiction books now these two science fiction books are by author adam david collings and they're basically season one, episode one, and season one, episode two. The ah, first yes. one, yes, this is Jewel of the Stars, and the, mm. that's the title of the series. So Jewel of the Stars by Adam David Collings. Season one, episode one is called Earth's Remnant. Now the passengers and crew of the cruise ship Jewel of the Stars were expecting a two-week luxury cruise, but when Earth falls to an alien invasion, they find themselves alone and on the run. Fleeing into unexplored space, they must do whatever it takes to survive. They may be the last free humans in the galaxy. If they reach unexplored space, they might yet survive, but an unstoppable enemy stands in their way. So, yeah, super fun Mm. little description there. Go for a little bit of a uh, 
uh, space crews and then find yes, out that the planet behind you has been taken over. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like going uh, overseas and then finding out your country's been locked down. <laughs> yeah. Come back. No, that's a bad COVID <laughs> joke. Moving on to Jewel of the too Stars, early. season one, episode two. Yeah, too early. Uh, is uh, a new reality. Now, a new reality reads as follows. Would you really want your vacation to last forever? Aveline wanted a perfect honeymoon on board the luxury cruise ship Jewel of the Stars, but when an alien invasion of Earth forced her to ship into unexplored space, her vacation turns into a life sentence. She's determined to fight with everything she has to hold on to her perfect dream, but why isn't her new husband fighting with her? A series of lootings on the ship turned violent, prompting security chief Jalen Banks to investigate potential organised crime, while First Officer Mayor Rice leads a supply mission to a mysterious Earth colony that shouldn't exist. When the invading aliens catch up and strand them on the planet, they meet what might be a new ally. The big question is, can they trust him? Mm. And that is A New Reality, which is Season 1, Episode 2 of the Jewel of the Stars series. There you go. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds super, super fun. Yes. And of course, there's going to be you know you'll find organised crime even when you're on the last uh, the last arc, I suppose, of, of yeah. human life. And of course, but no, that, that that sounds you know super cool. And that is by Adam David Collins. And you'll find that of course under our science fiction genre, which is um, heralded by our robotic eyed platypus. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I should mention the one other little article that I forgot to say during my news was that. You may remember I uh, volunteered to be a judge for the science, so the self-published science fiction uh, competition, and we had oh, no. three hundred entries, and we were looking at the uh, we had our first thirty as a group, so there's about six groups, and we've read our first thirty, and uh, now cut that down to the top ten in our group. So now we've got the next ten to read the full book and uh, give our scores on those. So some of that was, you know, it was interesting that science fiction is playing a very strong role at the moment because I listened um, to, uh, you know, all the feedback and that from people about the books. Um, I've signed up to do the science fiction story. We've got a beautiful, uh, you know, interview with uh, MK Nadal about science fiction Foundation, Isaac Asimov's, uh, you know, sort of classic tale is there. So a lot of it is about the science at the moment. Yeah, and look, science fiction never goes away, does it? But I guess no. sometimes we just stray away from it for a little bit, but then yes. it, it pulls you back in pretty quick. Mm. Um, you know, like just reading those, that synopsis for the the Jewel of the... Uh, was it the Jewel of the Stars? Yes, Jewel of the Stars, yeah. David Collins. Uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, it makes me, you know, think. Oh, oh, I'd love to just curl up now with a good sci-fi book. Uh, it's per- perfect weather for it. It's a perfect day for it, being that we're recording this on a Sunday. Yes. Uh, but yes, yeah, sci- science fiction. Tell me the caliber of the uh, the readings that you that you well, uh, got, had the opportunity. It's to really go interesting that uh, for most of them, the the scoring has been reasonably similar. You know, some people are a bit more keen, obviously, on some than others. But there's been a few that where the uh, the scoring has been quite different. So some that I thought, yeah, it's 
nah, not for me. I, you know, didn't think it was strong riding and I didn't think the characters jumped at me and the the big, you know, the opening didn't really grab me. I was a bit confused, all those kind of things. Whereas other people have scored them quite high and obviously they've ticked their kind of boxes in terms of what they expect. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see uh, once we do the whole book of these top group uh, because I think the ones that we've got, apart from a couple that I thought, nah, yeah, I wouldn't have put those in, <laughs> the others are all incredibly good. So it's going to be really interesting to try and score them uh, without, you know, getting uh, sort of distracted by what other people are doing. So, yeah, very interesting. But good quality, you know, great indie writers out there, uh, some amazing people doing some really good stuff. Yeah, but lots well, it of spaceships on covers. Being... <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, yeah. lots of spaceships. It's like on it's flicking to the romance section, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's right. You see the, the, the VHS, the six-pack. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you have sci-fi? Can you have sci-fi without spaceships? Absolutely, like, of you can. can. Yes. Uh, but so many. Yeah. You know, you've just you, opened right. the segue. <laughs> oh, there's a million trillion. But yeah, I'm just, yes. I'm just picturing uh, all, all the spaceship stuff style book covers I've seen. You know. I like the artwork from the 50s and 60s. I love, yeah. you know, those. And yeah, in some ways, it's uh, really comforting because you know covers. what the what you're getting, and it's like, yep, that suits me. And you have a look, and you see the particular is the particular technology um, reflected in the the way the spaceships depicted. Are there other things there? You know, is it dark space constellations, planets? Yeah, all those kind of things. So, still good. But anyway, I'm interested in your theme that you drew from your chat with uh, Mark Nadal, Aliens and Ecosystems. I think that's fantastic. I got really sidetracked researching all of this. Totally sidetracked. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and so, of, of course, uh, for our listeners there, Mr. MK Nadal uh, has... Oh, we should probably read the yeah, synopsis his... for the book. So The Return of the Yggdrasil by MK Nadal is uh, obviously the wonderful book that we're going to be chatting about when I had the awesome opportunity to speak with uh, Mr. Nadal. But the book synopsis is a misunderstanding of galactic proportions has seen the Yggdrasil return. Straight out of fashionable Viking mythology to prime time viewing on celebrity council elimination. <laughs> now the world must confront a trees have feelings to paradigm. As the invaders' numbers and influence grow, an underdeployed forester, ex-platypus researcher and a DJ must act. Is it time to gather the deadly arrow frogs or can dubstep back and ukuleles save the world alternatively is it already saved and who should decide return of the yggdrasil is a comedy romp through ecological armageddon hang on to your phone and prepare for a thought-provoking journey through issues such as the media sustainable agriculture plant communication climate change science and the nature of truth just a small a handful of little I think themes it's there. It's an the, amazing combination of things, you know, because I did know of Yggdrasil being, you know, in in because I read a lot of fantasy as well. So in Norse, you know, uh, mythology or cosmology, it is, you know, that the central sort of the big sacred tree, the you know, tree of life, those kind tree of things. Of life, yeah. And it's been around, you know, some of the earliest writings are around the 13th century. So it's been around for a while. So. Good on you for taking on the Norse mythology, putting it in a reality TV show, bringing it back as an alien. I mean, 
people just amaze me with their creativity. And that's just a, I guess, one of the beautiful things about science fiction. You can throw so many different elements together in the most unique ways. You know, the past to the future can bring it to the present. Um, and to talk about, I love the ter- not love the term. Obviously, I don't love the what it represents, but it sounds cool. Which is the uh, uh, ecological Armageddon. Yes. Uh, to be able to use that in a comedy, I think that yeah. that's a pretty good pretty good task to set yourself. Uh, well, yeah, that's it. And the fact that it's, I guess, eco fiction is what, or you know, there's climate fiction, which is more specifically on climate change. But you know, eco fiction, you know, Wikipedia tells us it encompasses nature oriented, non-human, or environment oriented human impacts or nature works of fiction. So, you know, there's that says the roots are in classic pastoral magical realism animal metamorphosis science fiction and other genres and it became popular around the 1970s when there was that kind of explosion of literature around the environment and nature um and sort of i guess you know the the eco-criticism is what they talk about but there's quite an interesting uh criteria for determining uh whether a given work is eco-fiction so having spoken to Mark, uh, according mm. to Jim Dwyer, who who wrote "Where the Wild Books Are: A Field Guide to Eco Fiction," four things. So one is the non-human environment is present not merely as a framing device, but as a presence that begins to suggest that human history is implicated in natural history. I think that ticks from what you've said. Okay, I just want. To, can, can you repeat that one again? Because yep. I'm just yeah. So the non-human like environment is present not merely as a framing device, but as a presence that begins to suggest that human history is implicated in natural history. Okay, so in effect is it suggesting that obviously nature or or an ecosystem uh, has a strong presence, but is that saying that to the point that it allows us to recognise that we come from that ecosystem? Not necessarily. So I feel like what he's saying is that if it's eco-fiction, then what it's suggesting is that the non-human side of the story is a character or is part of uh it's not just where the action takes place but it's part of the action uh and certainly uh, i think mark's uh, aliens are there and what he says that also is that it starts to suggest that human history is implicated in what we've done to the natural world so we're responsible for changes in the natural world and hey you know uh climate deniers aside i think it, there will be very few humans who didn't say yes humanity and human history has influenced natural history yeah okay that, that's a good point i mean the, yeah. the, the, again no discussion for climate stuff as far as whether climate change is real or not but i don't think anyone can deny that we you know as a species we have an effect on mm. the planet Yep. Um, now, whether, you know, the scope of that, of course, is up for debate and uh, I think should be in the hands of the scientists. And, and I, you know, my gut tells me we're probably doing some real bad damage. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, we, obviously we have some sort of effect. So yeah. All right. So there's we, point number one. Point number two yes. is the human interest is not understood to be the only legitimate interest. And, you know, plants have feelings. That's Mark's book. Definitely ticks off that one. I think plants have feelings. Yeah. Well, Yes. I think you you and, and Bobby go out and talk to your chilies. I know you keep your chili plants pretty happy there. And they have filled my freezer tenfold with amazing <laughs> and super hot. They, they returned your feelings with abundance. It's excellent. <laughs> Healthy chilies, that's right, yes. 
Okay, point number three as whether a book is an eco-fiction is human accountability to the environment is part of the text's ethical orientation. And I think it's interesting, as you mentioned, that, that Mark has chosen humour and the like, reality show to bring across some of his points about uh, our interaction with the, the natural world. But, yeah, because some of them can be pretty deep and dark. So, yeah, it's nice to see a good range to get that message across. Yeah, and you're right. Sometimes it, uh, you know, it, we can autom- sometimes it's easy to automatically assume a discussion on I guess climate change and the effects that we have on the planet is going to be dark or it's going to be troubling. But, it, you know, to be able to bring a bit of humour into I think it's a, you know important thing to be able to do too because, yeah. you know, it, it opens up, makes the discussion a little bit easier. Yeah. And if we, you know, if we can get to a point where we can laugh at ourselves, then, you know, it makes improving a lot easier too yeah. rather than, you know, worrying about who has to wear the guilt and who has to wear the blame. If we can yeah. all just laugh at everything a little bit and then sort of go, okay, look, we're all messed up. So how about we uh, just, just start something new? Yes. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, a bit of comedy is always good, especially considering uh, it is, at the time of recording, still pretty much feels like winter. We've now got tornadoes hitting <laughs> yes. the coastlines. Um, yeah, I guess if, you, if you're not going to laugh, you're going to cry because well, yeah. that, I can't remember the last time I've ever... And, of course, the earthquake. Oh, but we I, had I an earthquake in Melbourne, yes. Time. You remember the yeah, last episode? Yeah, but when was yeah. the last time... Cyclone, uh, sorry, um, tornadoes. Tornadoes, hit. I don't know. Oh, that magnitude. Yeah, but see, now we need a few more of our weather forecasters, our meteorologists and our, cos- not cosmologists, what are the earthquake people? Mm. Volcon, I was thinking about volcanologists. no. <laughs> <laughs> but we need a few more of those people to be celebrity superstars and then we'll hear about their passions. Yeah. Yes, yes, Okay. Yes. Point number four in whether books are ecofiction, some sense of the environment as a process rather than as a constant or a given is at least implicit in the text. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I so I guess that it's interactive. It's not just, yes, it's summer, but there's more talk about, uh, you know, the temperature and the interaction with plants and moisture and all those kind of things so yeah interesting with the, with the aliens and, and the ecosystem i guess the overall sort of thoughts that sprung to mind as i'm used on that was mm-hmm. you know if we if say tomorrow or in the next year let's say we discover a planet you know out in another solar system that we can 100 percent verify that has life on it whether mm-hmm. it just be plant life mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever sort of, it would be you know it would be the the greatest find that we've ever known as a species mm-hmm. um, and you know it would be such a treasure such a, a magnificent miracle of miracles so how come we don't realize that we are that miracle of miracles ourselves it's and that we are inside a, a, a such a, a highly balanced system that can easily be i mean you know just try and do try and look after a, a, a one or two marine animals in a in a marine like a, a marine style saltwater tank in your lounge room and see how much effort goes to it yes. and then think there's that whole ocean out there you know, running on a scale that just is impossible to imagine and that's not even taking into account the land you know and uh, trees and ecosystems and so i i mean i know it's, we sometimes we do take the time to re- realize how 
how special we are as a yeah. as as life. But but then it seems sometimes we don't, and uh, yeah, it's a strange it's a strange sort of it's a schizophrenic, I guess, relationship we have with our own existence. It's kind of we don't oh yeah, so you don't see what you're in, whereas somebody from the outside looking in goes, oh that looks good, or isn't that amazing? So but yeah, you you're right about those. Um, the ecosystem. So one of the articles I read was uh, Dan Cobalt, so K-O-B-O-L-D-T, uh, dancobalt.com. So Dan is a geneticist. He's a sci-fi and fantasy author, of course. Um, but he had an interesting article back in 2016 about enclosed ecosystems and life support in sci-fi. So I won't go into it. I suggest you go and have a look at his website and have a bit of a look. Um but he also, he gets, uh, what he does is tackles one of the scientific or technology concepts uh, and he gets some input from an expert. So uh, this expert that he got was Phil Kramer, who's got a PhD in biomedical science and studies metabolism and all those kind of things. And he talked about enclosed ecosystems and life support systems that are in sci-fi and sort of dispense with some of the myths, which is, you know, waste is useless and should be disposed of. Mm, Not so true. Uh, Another myth being water evaporates and condenses, but the total amount doesn't change. Also not quite true. Plants convert carbon dioxide into oxygen while animals do the opposite. Yeah, it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, but then he also talks about, you know, energy being with produced within the ecosystem uh, and, you know, got to get the energy sources right, solar, wind, water, geothermal, gas, and the other considerations being size. And this is where this article kind of segues from what you are mentioning about the earth because he says, you know, basically our system is a enclosed Uh, ecosystem and it is pretty big Uh, the larger the better we can sustain life and complexity and it will take longer to collapse if it's poorly maintained so as we know we've been you know trashing the place for a while but we have got the opportunity to make a difference so it was really interesting reading some of the things behind it and it made me consider how when I guess most genre fiction but in particular science fiction and fantasy authors where they create worlds alternate worlds sometimes for the characters to inhabit sometimes you can be generous about you go oh yeah that doesn't sound quite right but you can also I find myself being a bit picky about what they've decided to make different and if it doesn't quite feel balanced it could throw me off the story what, what do you mean by it doesn't feel so quite that if, if the world they've created um you know, if they don't talk about the balance, say if they're, you know, on a an enclosed biosphere on Mars or something, if there's not a little bit of background about how the air flows and how they oh. don't get outside or how they get rid of their waste or how they keep, you know, their green plants alive, etc., I feel like they've just brushed over it. I like the ecosystem, I guess, to have a little bit of a place in the story. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah, and... As you know, I love my virtual reality, um, yes. and which is uh, a great tool for science fiction stuff uh, or, or the sci-fi stuff. But one of the cool things about it there was uh, well, there's two documentaries, uh, part one, part two, uh, called uh, Space Explorers. But it's basically real high-resolution re- sort of 4K style, but 3D mm-hmm. uh, virtual reality, and mm-hmm. it was uh, all about you know astronaut training and then. You can go up into the then there's 
like footage in the actual space station looking down on Earth and mm-hmm. all this amazing stuff. Completely mind blowing when when you're in in you know in the middle of the experience. Mm. But to hear the people that are up that are up in the space station and you know each of them have an opportunity like each of the astronauts have an opportunity to sort of briefly go over their feelings when they first sort of looked down at the earth and all of them in a roundabout way said that it sort of hit them in a big moment where they realized that's it that's our home we're all in this together and it and it's just this like very fragile ecosystem flight you know lit up in this uh, eternal darkness mm-hmm. um and it was interesting the I, th- I think there was a russian one of the cosmonauts uh, mentioned that he felt any politician that leading a country should spend 10 minutes in space ah okay. because and uh, th- with that idea being that when you look down the, the big th- one of the big themes from the astronauts and cosmonauts i guess was when you look down there's no borders there's mm-hmm. no uh, yeah. dividing lines yeah. it's this uh, beautiful ecosystem that we need to you know keep alive and we need to let flourish and it's the only home we've got and you know when we come back down I guess I guess some of the some of the bedrooms are getting a little bit trashed yes yes absolutely so yeah. do we, I mean what's the catch do we need do we need do we need to discover an alien or do we need to discover other well it doesn't have to be intelligent life but other life to cause us as a species to bring the mirror back on ourselves and well rem- potentially and remind us that's that we're very aliens much, yeah I was just remembering before we go on to that next bit is that I remember reading in that that article from Dan Kobold, and I've just brought it up again. Even astronauts on the International Space Station get regular supply runs and have to exchange personnel. So the largest was um, sustained eight crew for two years, but they had to resort to some extreme measures to keep oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in normal ranges. And many of the plant, animal and insect populations died off. So, yeah, that just, when you, you know, put me on the space station looking back on Earth, I just remember that little bit that I read. I thought, oh, yeah, I have to share that. That was, hmm. But well, anyway. For a little, for a little interesting <laughs> side note, uh, yep. uh, listeners may not know, how could they? Um, so my wife's father... Uh, worked for NASA over in America. Ah, there uh, you go. And he's actually from Japan, so he was a head engineer for Mitsubishi. But uh, he, yeah, so worked over, and he looked after, he was like the, in charge of Japan's first female astronaut. So <gasps> There you go. And, yeah, so, but he watched that. Uh, the, I, I let my wife take the heads, one of the VR headsets over to Japan when she was over yep. there during the lockdown and to look after mum. But, he so I put that experience for him to to enjoy that the, the NASA one with all the mm-hmm. space because it did mm-hmm. show a lot of the training inside NASA that had probably never been seen before. But um, he was, was so happy because apparently there was a couple of things uh, operate like I can't remember which ones, but a couple of like machinations, machine based stuff yeah. in the space station that he could see him using that he helped design. Right. And he, he said, "I can't believe it. He's designed it. He's seen the he's seen it working." like in practice but of course he never had the opportunity to see it working in space mm. and there it was there so something Amazing. he'd uh, penciled back in the day so oh, yeah it's good. interesting that's yes that's good. So. good good but what um, about you veronica would you are you the kind of person that would enjoy getting a visit from aliens definitely i would be putting my hand up going yep bring it on buddies come on over <laughs> I think so. fax me up yep yep fax me up straight away <laughs> 
Uh, and look, I don't know, you know, why is it that I got interested in science fiction? And I got interested more in science fiction before fantasy, whereas now I'm a bit more in the fantasy incline. You know, I was in grade three when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and that had a pretty big impact, I think, on a lot of people in my generation. It would be interesting to see whether um, those kind of seminal events that we saw as, as kids or as impressionable ages has made a difference. And, um, you know, now people whizzing up. Oh, I love that uh, William Shatner got to go into space oh, even if it was right. only for four minutes, much as we, you know, talk about whether it's billionaires and those kind of things. But it's, it's a beginning. Yeah, I would definitely. I'd be saying, "Yep, bring it on." Yes, so dear, and I do. <laughs> in my in my heart of hearts, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed that we didn't pursue technology, certain technologies, for the longest time because we should have um, one day vacations in in orbit. Yeah, I can't, I can't I like that. If if it was a focus of uh, a capitalist, I guess you know, if it if it was a focus of a company that was going to try and turn it into a money maker, yeah, you know, from the start, we'd have it, which would be awesome. It may not be cheap, hmm. but uh, but neither's a Lamborghini. So, well. but at least, at least <laughs> would you want a Lamborghini you tr- when you had that? What did you have? Your panel van? Panel van? Oh, he wants a Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, no, they're yucky. But I mean, at least it's tangible, and if you you can try and save up for a Lamborghini. Mm. I can't save up for that space trip just no, yet. That's, uh, we didn't win Tessada on the weekend. We won $8, so, yeah, that's not happening. Oh, there we go. Well, you know, a little bit <laughs> I of shouldn't say we did win, but we did there. win, but only $8, yeah. All right, seven best well, science fiction books with exotic ecosystems. Oh, that another, sounds like yes. a cool list. This, it was a really cool list, and I won't go into it too much, of course, because it might take you a little while, but if you look up best-sci-fi-books.com, they have a whole stack of best science fiction books all over the place. And it's interesting because number seven was The Integral Trees by Larry Niven in 1983. Uh, trees in there, like the Yggdrasil. Number seven, uh, six, Dragon's Egg by Robert L. Forward in 1980, Life Evolving on the Surface of a Neutron Star. Uh, number five, Semiosis by Sue Burke in 2018. Given a billion more years of evolution, what would plants evolve into? Da da. Mm. There it is again. Uh, Titan is number four by John Varley in 1979. Uh, Spaceship One, bizarre world inhabited by centaurs, harpies, and constantly shifting environments. A planet-sized creature that orbits Saturn. Anyway, all good. Uh, number three, Bios uh, by Charles. Uh, sorry, Robert Charles Wilson, 1999. Uh, we've colonized the star system. Star fights possible. Um, and then they've got this DNA-based plant and animal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the life is toxic to human beings. I like those. Got to have a little bit of uh, complexity and conflict. Number two is one that <laughs> I hadn't realised I hadn't read of Ursula K. Le Guin's. Uh, it's called The Word for World is Forest. Interesting. So plants make another comeback with the inhabitants of a peaceful world are conquered by bloodthirsty humans. Their existence is irrevocably altered, forced into servitude. The Ulceans find themselves at the mercy of their brutal masters. So, again, uh, there's more on the plans. And number one was Dune, which I have read, uh, by Frank Herbert in 1965. And that's uh, that, you know, big epic where, wow, um, you know, water's a thing. No, I thought, yeah, okay. But they've got the, the huge sandworm um, and they've got all the deserts and the lack of water and... 
uh, all those kind of things and the the minerals. So yeah, there you go. Seven uh, seven of the best science fiction books with exotic ecosystems. And look, you know, lots of people in comments said, yes, but what about Midworld? And yes, but what about this? And what about that? So lots to uh, have a look at. There you go. Well, I I think the the, the new June movie is just about out. They've remade yeah, it. I hope they make uh, it better than the last one. <laughs> Yeah, and we could all... Well, it's not a book, though, but I was going to say, because remember Mad Max Fury Road? It was about uh, keeping alive that one tiny little plant. Uh, Not that that was the the plot, but there is a little tiny seedling that appears there that uh, is is cradled uh, in the movie, which is a powerful visual statement on the arid and dry wastelands. Um, Indeed, that our country can become, or that our planet can become. But yes, yes. there you go. That's yep. a cool. That's a cool list. Yeah. So, and I think a fitting list for today's a wonderful guest because, who knows, his book may be uh, may appear on one of those lists in the near future. But, uh, so, what do you think, Veronica? Should we jump to the interview? Let's go in. We've we've uh, delayed long enough. Let's go and have a chat with Mark. Because, yes, because I think we could talk about aliens and ecosystems forever. Oh, that's forever. it. Just um, tell that we love it. <laughs> Yes, but uh, for everybody out there, please enjoy a wonderful interview with author Mr. M.K. Nadal, who I'm sure will find a reason or two uh, to put a little bit of a smile or a chuckle in your day. And uh, here we go. Hello, ABL listeners. Our next guest on the Australian Book Lovers podcast is a science PhD with a background in zoology and marine science, also a ukulele maker, a proud owner of a Willemi pine, which I hope I pronounced right. I'm going to find that in a minute. And I understand somebody who lives in a windswept lighthouse somewhere along the Tasmanian coastline. Mr. Mark Nadal, thank you so much for joining us on the Australian Book Lovers podcast. How are you? Uh, not too bad, thank you. Did I did I pronounce the uh, pine right, the Wollamai? No, I'm afraid not. It's a Wollamai pine. Wollamai, of course, because wool is with a double O, a single O. <laughs> uh, Wollamai pine, what makes it, them very special? I, I can't say I'd know which kind of pine they are. Um, oh, a good couple of decades ago, um, they were discovered for the first ever time. So this is a 20 or 30 metre tree and only a couple of hundred kilometres from Sydney, or less, never seen until yeah, a couple of decades ago. Wow. So as in they managed to avoid detection until yep. such time? Or yep. Uh, uh, Bushwalker, um, doing a bit of exploring, happened to call upon the grove of them. This was big science views around the world, for, you know, tree people. And um, there's only 20 or 30, something like that, in the wild, in the whole world. But now you can buy them in a nursery through um, a nice combination of sort of conservation and commerce where, you know, they've been bred from seeds and whatever, and now they're scattered across the country in pots and gardens. Oh, there you go. And and I'm curious, is it something similar to your traditional pine where the seeds are part of the pine cone or...? Yeah, something like that. It's in that general family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I uh, look. I'm not going to pretend for one moment to understand much about plants <laughs> in the sense of from a science level. But uh, as someone who doesn't mind mucking around with art, I did discover that when you the the because we've got pine plantations down here in South Australia. So you, I discovered that when you catch or 
pick up pine cones when they're still fresh as in they haven't begun to open and then you slice them um they there's actually beautiful like mandala almost fractal patterns inside um that that's but it looks purely mathematics and, and at the same time stunningly beautiful so i developed a habit of picking lots and lots and slicing them and then gluing uh, opal in the middle of them and and definitely not my original idea there was a person in america was doing it but when i first sliced one open and saw the designs i was like oh wow that's just yeah absolutely yeah. stunning so yes uh the old pine cone i won't go into my research for my previous book, which delved into the pine cone, the pineal gland and the symbolism and uh, the huge pine cone that is uh, a feature of the Vatican. Uh, that will be for another top discussion. So we are here today to chat about your fantastic described book called, now I hope I pronounced this right, <laughs> Return of the Yggdrasil. Oh, very good, yes. Is that good? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Now, the description is definitely one of the most unique I've read. Um, and now I was also surprised to learn that an Yggdrasil was actually uh, a word for an immense sacred tree from Norse cosmology. So that's definitely something I'd like to pick your brain about in a minute. But for our listeners out there, as far as a very brief synopsis about your book, Return of the Yggdrasil, uh, the synopsis is as follows. A misunderstanding of galactic proportions has seen the Yggdrasil return straight out of fashionable Viking mythology to primetime viewing on Celebrity Council Elimination. Now the world must confront a trees have feelings too paradigm. As the invaders' numbers and influence grow, an underdeployed forester, ex-platypus researcher, sorry, and a DJ must act. Is it time to gather the deadly arrow frogs or can dubstep, bark and ukuleles save the world? Alternatively, is it already saved and who should decide? Return of the Yggdrasil is a comedy romp through ecological Armageddon. Hang on to your phone and prepare for a thought-provoking journey through issues such as the media, sustainable agriculture, plant communication, climate change, science, and of course, the nature of truth. So that is definitely, as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, one of the most interesting <laughs> synopsis I've read in a long time. So I would love if you could take some time and tell myself and our amazing listeners out there just what this amazing story is all about. Uh, well, the um, the Yggdrasil is, you know, the world tree. People have heard of the world tree, and you see the image everywhere with the branches and then the roots. Um, people don't know what it's called generally, perhaps, but I think I, I, I guess the, the tree of life would be probably yeah, yeah, the most common thing. Exactly, yeah. So um, my idea was that yes, these aliens have been here before many times over the thousands of years, and that's where their name comes from. That's what the Vikings called them or whatever uh, a thousand years ago. And um, their aliens with a difference. It's not the sort of book where they chase people around and eat them and make off with their children and so forth. Um, they're photosynthetic. They don't want our resources. They just want to stand around in the sun and our gravity and light and so forth is suitable for them. And... It is implied when they visited last that the earth was too cold, it was in the mini ice age, and now it's warming up, so it's better for them. Yeah, so what are the implications if the aliens are actually intelligent and photosynthetic? And the obvious one is they don't like the way we treat trees, because they have a natural thing, the trees. Um, and so there are the literal creatures, and they didn't understand that the... Um, 
TV show which had, you know, your usual celebrities on it, uh, sports person, comedian, all that sort of thing. They didn't understand those people didn't actually have political power. And so they, like a few of them arrived on the show and sealed off from the rest of the world and announced their intentions and... Uh, and yeah, it goes from there. Yes. <laughs> well, so basically, uh, photosynthetic aliens and reality TV and basically conscious plants really is, is one hell of a mix. Perhaps so. Other people have observed that they've never read anything like it before. Um, I suspect that I, might be a common. I prefer to take that in a good way. That's from a mass market point of view, probably not a good idea. No, I, th I think absolutely to be taken that in a good way. Uh, it's yeah, just yeah. such an intriguing premise. Um, and so, so many like little things in there that I, I want to, you know, definitely pick your brain about. Obviously, you've got a science background uh, and, and you know, PhD in, in zoology and marine science. Now, and so I understand one of the themes of the novel is plant communication. Um, now, that, that's something I've been fascinated with for a long time. Because I'm, I'm, I'm forever on the fence. I, I, I'm, I, I try to grasp the concept that, you know, for example, uh, evolutionary steps uh, are, are happen by chance, but given enough time, you know, th those chance changes can develop into, you know, these fantastic organisms and biological machines, processes and ecosystems that we see today. I, 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 on one hand, I get that, that millions of years can potentially, you know, uh, compound mistakes or or you know malfunctions or the wrong sort of copying copy edits but at the same time like for example the idea of color playing a role uh, for, for plants using the idea of color playing a role in either attracting or, or or deterring various animals i've always wondered like if a plant obviously a plant can't see so is there a, an in-depth uh, element of intelligence within their genetics that has uh, information regarding the understanding of light frequencies and how they are interpreted through biological eyes, which is obviously where, where the colour spectrum arises to a certain degree anyway. Or do you think it really is some random process where over millions of years, you know, the ability to use colour for whatever purposes, whether it's to, uh, you know, become more successful or, or, or protection, the use of colour, is it just simply a profitable mistake that's been compounded upon? Do you have a, a thought one way or the other? Well, evolution's not directed in that sense anyway. It doesn't direct towards something, you know, it's just random. But there's no doubt that plants have senses. Uh, they don't have eyes, but they detect light. Um, they favour blue light. If you give them a choice, they'll grow towards a blue light filter. Um, you know, everybody knows they grow towards the sun. Mm -hmm, some, mm -hmm. some flowers will shift during the day to follow the sun. Yeah, they actually scare me a bit, some flowers, so but anyway. Their sight is equivalent to somebody, you could argue, with very low vision. They can see light and day, but not images like we see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's still a form of sight. Call it something else if you like, but it's a form of sight. They have chemical communication, which when it's in water, you could say it's equivalent to our taste. And when mm -hmm. it's through the air, it's equivalent to our smell. They have touch, which is less obvious, but the really fast moving plants like a Venus flytrap, you tickle it, it closes. Mm, a mimosa, you tickle it, it closes in real time, not in time-lapse photography, which is why we don't 
really see them as interacting life forms because they're so slow. But of course, if you see um, a creeper growing, you know, on an Attenborough documentary over three weeks, well, it looks like it's thrashing around looking for something to cling to because that's what it's doing. It's just doing it so slowly. You don't notice it till you see it climb the pole, speed it up. Well, they probably got a collective memory that rocks don't tend to move that fast either. So they've probably got time. Yeah. So, I mean, they have senses. I don't think anybody except perhaps, uh, you know, say the loony fringe of plant communication science would say they have feelings in the sense of emotions. I mean, that's a controversial viewpoint even in animals. But there's no doubt they have senses and interact and communicate with each other. Mm. Um, you know, that's not fairy tales, that's, that's well-established science. Whether you want to call that intelligence or not, it is, again, is a very controversial area. Um, you know, Charles Darwin said ages ago, well, obviously ages ago, that the root tip of a plant was kind of equivalent to the brain of an animal. Um, you know, these ideas, Aristotle talked about plant intelligence and sentience, you know, 2,000 years ago. These are not new ideas, but in recent times, there's been some very good books on, you know, plant communication and, and so forth. It's a serious science, which I have quite an interest in. If you like, I could tell you how that started. But, uh, yeah, by, by all means, because I'm fascinated. Like, I, I just don't understand, for example, like, I have no doubt plants have some form of communication, and, and you're absolutely right. Photosynthesis and their ability to interpret light in different ways is most definitely probably what you could say a form of vision. But, for example, you know, uh, poison berry being red, you know, vivid red, like, is, you know, that, that vivid red works because it transmits information via the bouncing of light into an iris it doesn't uh, from from what i understand it doesn't project or uh, send that information through any chemical sense so you know is it something that's blindly designed over time that uh so for example just you know i don't understand if it is a plant just throwing out every pigment or every color imaginable and and the ones that don't get eaten um are the ones that maintain that colour. Where did the colour come from in the first place? Yeah, I mean, there's flowering plants have so evolved with animals. So, you know, fruits are colourful, so animals with colour vision can see them and, and nibble them. Um, if you want to produce a poisonous berry and label it as poisonous, well, it needs to be a colour that your predators can see. Um, yes, that's how evolution works. If, uh, if they're always different colours, then the animals won't work it out. So no, that's right. Very, that's why I think yeah. it, it's less evolution, more like uh, it definitely seems to suggest intelligence of some degree. I know. I mean, the plants are not choosing that colour berry. To, you know, that's not quite how it works. But um, but you know, that's slightly off the track how <laughs> how natural selection works. But, um, um, what I noticed years ago when I was um, growing microalgae, so microalgae are little the smallest possible plants, often, well, yeah, single-celled. Um, and they swim, not all of them, but some of them actually actively swim, like a tadpole. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of them might have two tails and some of them look like little spaceships and, and some are just round blobs. Um, so to see a plant actively swim 
towards the light, I thought, wow, what's the difference between this little thing and a little animal? Now, the only difference is that this thing is green and uses the sun's energy instead of eating something. You know, its behaviour looks just the same as a microscopic animal. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and that sort of triggered my interest, which was mainly in zoology, you know, in the past, um, into, you know, oh, well, if that's the simplest of all plants, look like animals and behave like animals, what the more complex plants like trees, you know, what are we missing? And apparently quite a bit, and there's been, you know, quite a number of popular science books in this area in recent times, uh, the hidden life of trees and so forth. So that's a major theme in the story, the aliens relating to Earth's plants and what are the implications when, you know, another species says, stop eating carrots, that's barbaric, (laughs) you know. Because you kill the carrot. Well, you don't kill the mango, that just falls off the tree. Or you pick it, it doesn't hurt the tree. But eating some plants kills them and others doesn't. So, you know, that's a bit of a theme and a bit of fun with food, fashion and so forth. Oh, that's, so really, so, so in essence, the aliens that are returning, they're more, their ancestral line, you could say, is to the plants as opposed to, you know, aliens that are usually some sort of biological entity uh, that, that has some sort of, you know, similar, um, similar yeah, to that's... humans that so we eat meat or we, you know, so that's quite cool. No, actually, it's more devious than that, Darren. Oh, is it now? You assume that they're related to plants. They're not. These are our earth labels, and this is one of the themes. You know, we want to call, we want to label everything. Of and, course. Well, these are not from earth. You can't use our labels. Um, they behave like animals, but they're photosynthetic. And it turns out there's a series of little clues scattered through the book, and um, it is part of the nature of the book. It's a scientific discovery process. Uh-huh. It turns out they made themselves photosynthetic millions of years ago by, you know, biotechnology. And they argue that the only civilised, moral way and sustainable way to live for anything is to use the sun's energy directly, not to kill other things and, and live that way. But they don't tell us that at first. It's discovered along the way. Uh-huh. Um, well, don't go giving too many... Uh, sorry. It <laughs> <laughs> is an important theme, one of scientific discovery. Um, uh, that, that's fascinating. So, you know, it's not just a uh, science fiction comedy and, like, bizarre tale, but so you've actually um, sprinkled it with quite a lot of interesting, not trivia, but, like, science facts that we may not be aware yeah. of. That's, yeah. that's, that's there cool. is a reference at, at the back. A lot of people, uh, well, I really like some of the, you know, the comments in that people would say, oh, I didn't realise that was true until halfway through and then I started looking stuff up and I realised that you weren't making all this stuff up. Um, I was perhaps using it in a different way, but I, yeah, it was based on well-known science in those specialist areas. Yes. Yeah, uh, sounds like a really cool approach, definitely, and, and obviously something that uh, utilises your career skills and, and drawing that into the art world, that's, that's an amazing achievement. Uh, it, yeah, again, one of the mysteries at the start is the platypuses disappear. Why? What's happened? Um, 
it, it turns out that accidentally sort of interfered with the electrical um, activity of the aliens and, um, and they disappear, well, they die, at least locally. And um, the main character, one of the main characters is a platypus researcher. And of course, it's hard for her to do her research when they suddenly disappear on her in the yeah. Dainton Forest where she's researching. And I did do some platypus research assistance myself. So again, an interest in, in that side of things. Well, I read that uh, some of the story is set in Cairns. Now, I actually lived in Cairns for a few years. And so I'm wondering, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but uh, he had the platypus farm up in the Tablelands, I think it was. Uh, I think one of the only uh, like platypus farms in the world where in, and like uh, like different documentary crews and TV channels from all around the world are sort of regularly there to film when, when they're out and about. Do, does that ring a bell at all? No, I didn't know anything about that. I just, chose, I can't remember why I chose Cairns really. Um, <laughs> well, oh, there's a lot of stuff grows there. <laughs> well, the um, the the um, reality TV show was being filmed in a fictitious eco lodge just outside Cairns, basically. And but I can't really remember why I chose Cairns. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe the the platypus researcher was right on the edge of the platypus um, distribution. When you go further north, the crops eat them, and so there's a sort of <laughs> distribution curve of where they occur and where they don't. I think that's why I was right on that borderline. I was going to say the platypus border, yes. 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 (laughs) Cairns is beautiful. I always joke that uh, when you mind the lawn there, it's growing behind you already. It's just so, everything's just so fast growing, obviously tropics. Um, Yes. But uh, yeah, it's it's a nice place. Coran is beautiful. A little hippie, hippie little Yeah, I have house. been there yeah, a long time ago, probably 20 years. But yeah. yeah, I could definitely picture an eco-village out there somewhere, mm, somewhere yeah, between yeah. there and the Barren Falls. Now, um, so return to maybe another theme that you've identified in your book is the role of media. Now, I'd love to hear your views on the role of media, of course, not to give any plot points away, but, uh, you know, <laughs> from we've obviously... From my my side of the fence, I think we it feels like we've gone from so back in the seventies, eighties, even the early nineties, there were like narrow avenues of media. You had your main, at least here in Australia, you had your what your three four channels, you had a couple of newspapers in each city, and you had you know a couple of radio stations that might focus on news and information. Uh, and it, you know, fast forward to now, we've got this like saturated globe with endless information: some true, some false, some in between. I'm just wondering when you when you talk of media and use media in the book. Um, just wondering your personal viewpoint. Do you think media in general can be trusted more today or less than before? Well, I guess my main interest in that it's just so splintered. You can live in your own reality, which is you know a theme in the book, uh, where you only hear stuff you're going to agree with, um, and you can just live in that world now. Um, you don't have to be in the real world don't have to get uncomfortable and, with your beliefs yeah but this of course an alien a genuine alien arrival would shake things up you know <laughs> um once it, i mean at first it's a, you know assumed it's a fake it's for the tv show and then they start popping up all over the place and and at first nobody believes the stories that you know they've arrived because nobody believes sensational media and um and it, yeah, I guess my views are that yeah, yes, it's just splintered and it's it's entertainment masquerading as information some of the time, and mm. you know, um, 
and also people make money from splitting us apart and creating these divides which are not good for society and in the end the aliens bring people back together in a sense because everybody agrees that this is both a threat and an opportunity um although there is a minority that go and hide in their bunkers <laughs> and good riddance um so yeah i mean it, it, it's a theme what is the nature of truth you know, not just in science, but how do you reason logically? How do we know what's real in the media um, and as well as, you know, in is this a scientific fact or is this coincidence, that sort of thing. But critical thinking as a skill is an important part of the book and maybe something that we have lost <laughs> in some point in the last couple of decades. Well, yeah, when, when we're going down the rabbit hole of like deep fakes and that sort of stuff uh, where, you know, you can't even, uh, you know, like you can, before it was very easy to manipulate words or, you know, you could read something and it could be written so well you could think it's truthful. But then usually it's like, you know, show me or show me the proof, which is usually visual. But now even the proof, unless you see it in the flesh, yeah, it can be completely manipulated. So yeah, yeah you're right. But I'm wondering, you, you said about how, you know, the, the impact of aliens suddenly arriving um, from a from a science perspective, rather than you know, it's purely sociological. Uh, what do you think the initial impact would be? As uh, do you think science would? Uh, do you think governments would it bring us together as species or split us apart? That again was a bit of a theme. What will the United Nations, you know, how will it tackle this? This is a global crisis, but the United Nations doesn't have any power really in the story. Everybody goes their own way and some fare worse than others because they attack the creatures and others just sort of say, okay, we can't drive them away, but they don't really want much sort of thing. Um Sorry, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> oh, just like to, for, for example, like from a scientific perspective, do you think like uh, if if tomorrow there was you know a ship landed and there was some sort of attempt attempt at communication from an alien life form, mm. um, do you think it would you know like obviously there'd be hysteria etc. But uh, from a fundamental perspective, like from a scientific and government perspective, do you think it would bring it bring the nations together? I'd like to think it would, but would you have people or some governments, you know, trying to get on side with the aliens and sacrifice the rest of the world. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, there is, I would think there's that potential that really makes the point, oh, we're not alone. We're all one kind. They're a different kind. Maybe we should be, you know, more cooperative together. And, you know, even seeing the Earth, you know, that blue marble picture floating in space by itself, as many astronauts have pointed out over the years, doesn't that make the point that this is our home, all of us, it's the only one we've got, <laughs> leaving aside going to Mars and living in a bubble, you know, we've got to get together and because everybody affects everybody else, you know, so I think it would bring us together, but... I can't be sure we're, we're people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was one of the Russian cosmonauts uh, that, that spent time in space said, you know, his, you know, I think one of the questions is what, you know, what's one of the things you've learned out there or what sort of perspectives is it And he said it's, it's taught me that, you know, any politician should have to spend at least, you know, 24, 48 hours in space uh, before, that they, before they make decisions that could impact, you know, a country or a planet. 
because that then you know if they if they could be in his shoes for 24 hours or to see like you said that blue marble in space mm. a lot of the decisions might be different but i like to think that you know if if a species does come down and i'm sure it will happen at some point in time whether it be electronic or however it might be but let's for the moment think of you know classic uh hollywood style a ship comes down and some and some some sort of creatures come off i, I like to think that you know once once it becomes more than apparent that here's a species or whatever you'd like to call it that is far more intelligent and has far more knowledge of the universe than us enough so that we couldn't bluff or steal from it and try and outdo them then it becomes there's no point to fight with each other here when there's something so powerful that you know assuming is kind because i think like with humans we we always want to even if we're threatened by you know one country's threatened by the other well then they feel that the need to become powerful enough so that they can be in a position to threaten Uh, but but if something's so massive it's such a huge intelligence on land hopefully that would spin all that uh, behavior out the window yes you think it would make some sort of difference wouldn't you that we're all in it together sort of scenario. <laughs> well, that's the oxymoron, isn't it? That's what they've been pushing all this time. We're in it together. Meanwhile, we've never seen so much fragmentation. I haven't. States fighting states, countries, you know, splitting away, but uh, nonetheless. Uh, so, yes, well, social media obviously uh, is, a, is a big role today and uh, I think we're going to still see uh, huge changes to our society from it so I think definitely an interesting theme to work with but you did you did talk about the uh, the, the scientific process as a creative force in the search for truth uh, as, a, as another important message in your book I'm just curious because the search for truth ultimately I'd like to think is, is there's only one path as far as you know there's no no one's searching for alternate truth. No one's searching for half truth. The search for truth is the search for truth. There's no distinction, division, or different ways to interpret it. But obviously, you know, there's a big di- division between religion and science, both of which talk about truth. Uh, but it, it does strike me a little bit odd that where religion, when they talk about the word, which is the word of God, they themselves can't agree on that word. So I can't see how they can derive the word truth from it if five people can read and five people interpret different where a science will say if you put fire to water at some point it will begin to boil and turn to steam and no matter what you believe it's going to happen so i think you know that i think that's you know working so the fact that science works from established laws and and seeks to establish laws from theories working but work with laws um but it's it, at the moment it's still probably considered unspiritual when it when I reckon it seems to be a bit of a greater guider of truth in in what is ultimately a mind-bogglingly mysterious universe, do you think science will eventually and and this is in the far future, do you think it will become a true global religion like as in it'll all come to a point where it just the role of everything is the search for truth, if we live long enough, as a species? I don't know. There's, there's always going to be grey areas, but just um, I mean I come from perhaps an unusual non-religious background. There seem to be generations of um, non-religious people in my family, and I didn't know people actually believed in gods until I was in my teens. I thought it was just like ancient Greek or Norse mythology. I didn't know people actually believed in it. Um, so I have an academic interest in religions, and there's you know, enormous numbers. This is thousands have come and go we invent them and they die out like languages um it's you know then they can't all be true because they're mutually exclusive (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, um, they're not true. <laughs> and again, intelligent aliens that don't look like people, well, if God created us in his image, what the hell are these things that have just taken over the world? That would shatter many of the world's religions if intelligent aliens actually exist. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Possibly deal with microbes on Mars in the ice, but intelligent non-human aliens, what does that mean in terms of the world's religions? Um, yeah, I'm interested in what science, the science doesn't have the answer to everything, um, but no, there was no, a process no. to getting, you know, what is real and what isn't real. And then there's, you know, what you do with that and is a different question. And uh, I don't think it should be a religion in its own, it should be an aim to search for truth, but it shouldn't be something to be worshipped. It's a, it's a method. Just trying to find out what is real which is useful. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I think that's that, that's kind of where I was at. Not, not that it becomes a religion in itself, but in the sense of that what we call religion and what we call science begins to emerge in, in a far future where it becomes, uh, they, you know, they, they come together to symbiotically to continue that search for truth, you know. Um, and obviously there's an X point beyond which nobody knows and I can understand religion having a part to, you know, dedicate time to what may, may lie beyond that point, which none of us can know. And maybe science will never be able to answer. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But as far as, you know, we're here now live on this planet, this blue marble spinning in the universe. Um, together, if we can come together in the near future or the future, then who knows what we can do if if we all start to agree on, like you said, the uh, the using the scientific process, but also using the human um, human existence as a creative force in the search for truth. So I'd, I'd hope to see it one day. <laughs> now, uh, but as far as um, human species living long enough and all these very deep and meaningful uh, discussions that obviously form integral parts of books, I'm just wondering how long did it take you to put together this story and, and what was the, when did the kernel or the seed for the idea begin and, and what prompted you to turn it into a full-fledged novel? I probably started actually writing it two years ago, maybe two and a half, I can't remember. I, I've had the idea in the back of my head, you know, for, I don't know, since I was studying marine biology stuff, which is 15, 20 years, I think. When I, you know, when I saw the microalgae swimming around, that thought, oh, that did start something. And I have had other ideas for novels in the past, and then I found somebody else had written them already. So I thought, <laughs> damn, I've really got to write this because tree communication is now becoming more mainstream. People know about, you know, um, the books um, that I mentioned before. So somebody else will put all that together, I think, if I don't write it. <laughs> um, the idea that, oh, oh, what if plants have uh, rights, um, the same as animals? Uh, how do we deal with that? Um, if it's not okay to eat a cat or a dog, is it okay to eat a carrot? Um, <laughs> you know, what's the answer there in terms of ethics, um, environmentalism and health? I thought, all these things were coming together in the public consciousness and I, I really had to write it. 
uh, yeah. One of the most stunning things on alleged plant intelligence is done by an Australian researcher, and I do mention it in the book, this is fairly recent. She conditioned, you know, the classic dog, Bell, Pavlov's dog, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Um, so the thing that dog drools because you ring the bell because it's associated the bell with food. Yep. So this researcher did the same with pea plants. Uh, how did it work? Put them in a pipe where they could grow left or right. The top of the pipe, um, blue light, which they prefer, so they grow towards the blue light. She put a little fan, like a computer fan, at the top of the pipe as well as the blue light, and they learned, once you took the light away, they learnt just to grow. Ah, uh, to where the fan was. Which has no significance for feeding. They were conditioned, you know, the same way you would condition an animal, was just that the stimulus mm. has to be completely different. Wow. And isn't that shocking? Well, it is, and, and that's why it's... Uh it's just such a fascinating area of research and I'm, I'm glad it's something that's getting, you know, better and better. I mean, I've, I've got 20 uh, of the world's, uh, I, I'm a chili lover, so I've got 20 pots out there uh, <laughs> of all the hottest chili plants you can imagine, crossbreeds. Of, I've got white Carolina Reaper, red Carolina Reaper, you name it, chocolate devil's tongues, habaneros, chocolate habaneros and scorpions. <laughs> but, but um, you know, every morning I'll go out and it's basically a ritual with myself and the cat and the cat will sniff each plant and give them like an inspection. Yeah. And, you know, they're supposed to be mainly just an annual plant and it's sort of one. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still getting the chilies off. Uh, these are third year running for same plants in a pot. Right. Uh, and yet the ones that I kind of ignored, like, because I just didn't really like the, the particular chilies, uh, they weren't, practical for me i didn't spend as much attention and they didn't make it for the third year that they, they, they just didn't grow like well, as in because you'd tr- I'd trim them or prune them or carry them over winter but um they just they're not producing at all or if they're producing they're like deformed or, or tiny chili plants uh, chili peppers but the ones that i loved and were like sort of doting over and you know always with my cat checking them out and you know yeah. uh they, they they're still going gangbusters so i'm, I'm that's hardly scientific evidence of anything but uh hey I, i'm out there every day and it's just odd the ones that i've doted over turned out to be the ones that that went so well even in the third year when uh, the others sort of faded away and didn't didn't do anything so yeah yeah definitely there's definitely something in those little plants and in all plants um definitely and i mean the whole thing if the 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 magical garden mystical forest the you know this uh it's always been there's i think it's always all through time there's been some sort of concept of trees having intelligence hasn't there as far as fairy tales yeah and in, you know, again, a minor theme is the Indian religion of Jainism, which is one of the oldest written down religions in the world, you know, as old as Buddhism and Hinduism. They don't eat plants if it involves killing the plants. This is a 3,000-year-old religion. Yeah, well. Uh, they take the view that they have a degree of sentience, as do animals. It's not right to kill them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is not 
something that's died out, this is still millions of people in the world yeah. that will not eat carrots, potatoes, um, perhaps leafy vegetables if you tear the whole thing out of the ground, which kills it. In theory, you could eat, I can cut a bit off my spinach and not kill the plant. But often the way it's in the supermarket, well, they've killed the plant. Um, so, yeah, James eat fruit, nuts, seeds. You don't kill the host eating those things. Um, this is not a newfangled, new age stuff. You know, people in ancient Greece thought about this. Charles Darwin thought about it, so did his grandfather. Um, Aristotle in, in, in India, Jainism. Uh, these are not new things, but I think when you wed that to modern plant communication science, then you can see that there's actually some logic to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, without getting too far off the uh, the la- the uh, what do you call it the, the the I don't know the hippie side of things or anything, but purely from a scientific perspective, uh, the fact that so many plants have got that uh, concentration of, of DMT. Um, now, what that does to the human brain is absolutely mind-blowing, uh, absolutely mind-blowing. And, of course, the people that have done it in clinical trials or, or clinical studies, when they, when they sort of regain consciousness, they're 100% convinced that they have met an intelligence. You know, something that that uh, far more intelligent than us, something that's in a different f- field, different dimension, or or at least an extra dimension. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, and it's sitting there in plants all around us. So, you know, whether that has anything to do with intelligence, whether anything has to do with their communication, it obviously has a role uh, in something, and it, and it, and strangely enough, it also affects the human brain in probably the most profound way any substance can. Um, and of course, it's uh, something that's n- completely non-toxic to us too, because um, the theory is we we generate it ourselves. So, yeah, that's uh, so. Plants are definitely not just uh, a carrot to be plucked from the ground and chopped on. Although I do love carrots, so you'll have to forgive me. I have murdered a few of my time. <laughs> now, I'll, we'll get back to uh, the writing. So uh, so you've explained a little bit about the uh, the motivation for writing the book. Um, but I'm wondering when it, came, when it came to just the actual act of writing, did you have a particular discipline that you developed or, or followed? Like, did you set hours in the day? Did, did you, um, were you a, a write the whole draft, then edit? go over the second time or do you do a chapter and then go back and edit? So did you have a sort of set set method in place or was it just something you attacked when the timing was right and, and the passion and the ideas were flowing? Um, yeah, I, I think I made a list of themes. That was my starting point. I wanted to, you know, talk about many of these aspects that you'd, um, you've mentioned. And so then I wrote a sample chapter or two just actually started with one on platypuses. I don't know why that's not the beginning of the book, but uh, I just wanted to see if I could write anything. Well, I've written scientific type articles and so forth, and I've written a, a children's book illustrated and written one, but that's not oh, quite okay. the same as writing 120,000 weird novels. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had a, had a system, a structure for what I felt was important to talk about in a novel, but then 
and I probably ended up tucking 20%, you know, after editorial comments and so forth, which is too long and too off the point, all that sort of thing. Um, I would work on it mainly in the evenings after work and on weekends. Um, nearly every day I would do something. If I couldn't think of what to do next, then I would do the next bit of research, whether that was on sugar or Norse mythology or something I needed to know more about. Um, so I was off, you know, if not actually writing, then thinking about the next aspect to be written and reading about that. Um, you know, I you know, read a whole book on the history of sugar, slavery, economy, health issues, and ended up, you know, only writing a couple of paragraphs on on the role of sugar in the alien invasion. They said, what a waste of resources. Why are you doing this to yourselves? You the cane alone. That's a, it's an interesting way to do it. That's a, a kind of a similar approach to myself where I, if I'm not writing, I'll be researching, which is usually reading a book on a particular subject that I, I want to include, at least it's, even if it's a tiny aspect of it. And But it's amazing how whatever you finish reading, it can change the way you already had planned as far as yeah. maybe the direction of the plot or characters or anything. So, yeah, it's definitely a two-way street that, that research can also be creative in its own sense. Yes. Now, when it comes to the experience of writing, so I understand this is like you, you just mentioned, you've written in science uh, papers, etc., and a children's book, with this one being your first, I guess, uh, fiction full full feature. Is there anything uh, that surprised you about the process? Anything that you learned that you weren't expecting, or anything pleasant or unpleasant, or anything that is uh, you know really uh, surprising, basically, about the process from beginning to end? Yeah, uh, well, I guess I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if I could do it. Um, so you can see so that that's one thing you discovered. And I guess what I found sometimes it was effortless. You know, it would just flow, and I thought, "Wow, this is really good." And other times, you just had to have the discipline to, okay, put something down, and this is going to need work, and more work, and more work, and over time all that evens out and it's at a standard where I considered it was okay. But, um, you know, sometimes it was a joy to, you know, spend an hour writing something that amused me if nobody else in the world and it just was so easy to do. And then I thought, okay, I've got to get from here to here, structure and plot-wise. Damn it, how am I going to do that? It's, you know, going to have to... <laughs> Think that out step by step and, you know, write the links and, um, yeah, and make it still the same readable tone. So you need, I imagine, most people need some amount of discipline to get through those trickier bits and you can't just sit there and whip it all off in one go unless it's a short limerick. <laughs> No, it's def definitely not, nothing you could just uh, scroll together on a lunchtime or two and be done with it. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment, <laughs> a commitment in chaos and a commitment in tenacity and a commitment in uh, frustration, but also a commitment of extreme uh, joys and uh, discoveries, absolutely. And now that you've gone, now that you've uh, got this one's out, uh, have you 
already has it given you the a massive inspiration or inspirational drive to get writing again or are you just enjoying the process of doing a bit of publicity and just letting uh taking a bit of a break after writing that one or where what what uh, i guess what what literary plans have you got for 2021 uh, no plans i don't know that i need to write <laughs> anything else. I mean, I would if there was enough interest, perhaps. Um, I would need a break. So I've been doing other things, other, I do art mainly as well. I wouldn't say I was a writer. First I'm a scientist, then an artist, and lastly a writer. So I've just been doing a bit of art to change things up in my spare time. Um, yeah. What like style art do you do? I like to, sorry? Oh, sorry, what, what style of art do you do? Oh, painting, woodwork, um, yeah, um, a tree hung with Japanese parasols and lights that changes with the weather and the, and the days. Uh, that was uh, a sort of ongoing wow. light project. Um, oh, I've been learning to re-wicker chairs, you know, you know what wicker is, I take it now? Uh, yeah, I'm assuming it's similar to cane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, I've, I've learned the process of making wicker chairs. I uh, thought that would be interesting. Oh, definitely. We. I hope you're designing some super cool wicker chair that's going to be your official yeah. author chair for your desk, writing desk. Uh, yeah, uh, that came too late. <laughs> must before I finished my... I did have that, that image in my mind, yes this lovely bentwood wicker chair, which I now have, which I've restored, but I didn't have it most of the time I was writing. I just sat on the couch. Sometimes. Oh, there Well, you've got that. At least it's still an artist chair. Good for painting. I'm yeah, it is, yes. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, well, I haven't made, it, haven't made any musical instruments for a while, but, you know, it's a, another interest. Just I also used to make wooden tennis rackets. Um, oh, wow. I, I used to have an old Donne. Yeah, I like the process of steam bending and rediscovering ancient crafts. Um, yeah, it's good for the brain and the fingers to learn new things. So, what, uh, so ukulele? Have you ever thought, like, obviously, um, a stringed instrument? Have you thought of venturing out into other instruments? String uh, style? Yeah, not really. Um, I suppose I could make a guitar, but. I don't know. Um, my ukuleles are unusual looking. Some of them look like boats. Some of them look like lutes. None oh, of them. Look okay. like, they don't look like normal, you know, narrow at the waist guitars and ukuleles. Um, that would be too derivative, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm assuming you play them. Not well, but not others, well. <laughs> in the, not, others in the family play at a expert level. I think I'm allowed to say that. He's not in the room. Oh, they're fun. They're, they're great fun. I mean, uh, uh, as a guitarist, I never, I only discovered or began to have a bit of a play with the ukuleles uh, last year when my wife wanted to uh, muck around with one. So mm. I got one and I was, uh, yeah, intrigued with the with the tuning and, uh, and of course, different tuning gives you a whole different, uh, for me, a whole different uh, experience on it. And they're, they're yeah. great. 
Yeah, I only make tenors, by the way. They're the longer neck version. They sound more mellow. I don't like the strummy little ones. Okay. <laughs> you might have noticed, yeah, in your intro, yes. It's a very, very minor theme, making fun of ukulele players in the novel. Oh, is that okay? No, I think they're great. I mean, I'm, I'm a beach guy, so, you know, m- many ukulele when I was on the Goldie and even here. I think there's a couple of ukulele clubs here in South Australia. Uh, yes. uh, Again, the theme of the novel was that they like our music. It's the only really thing about human culture they like is is music excellent i hope they have your metal fans as well that's a bridge between the species um which comes about through the um the tv show where one of the people is a pop star that's won one of these music as a competition competitions you know Uh (laughs) and so yeah she's sort of the bridge that in a way so a uh I don't even know what the show's called nowadays. So you think you can sing or whatever it is. So one of them may become one of those sort of shows. The saviour of our globe. Yep, that's <laughs> right. Um, somebody said to me, "Gee, you must know a lot about uh, what's it called, reality TV." And I, I know absolutely nothing. I just see the ads and I just make it up in my head. <laughs> what, what sounds ludicrous? <laughs> put it in a novel. Well, you may have put more thought to it than the makers of the reality show. No, I couldn't tell you. I've, I've watched it. I've worked on a reality show. I worked on one of the seasons of Survivor. That was a bit of an eye-opener, filmed over in China. I felt more like a survivor than the actual contestants. They were getting medical checks, and we were lugging all the equipment up and down these mountains, and I don't remember getting a medical check, but we were fed well. So, Yeah. Um, but now, is it? it is true still that you're living in a lighthouse, is that right? No, I made that up. Oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Because <laughs> that has been one of my oh, all-time dreams is to at least even just to rent a lighthouse for, for a winter <laughs> on some remote coastline. Um, I, I do live <laughs> near the beach in the yeah. world, but not in a lighthouse. Oh, well, you live near the beach. I'm sure you've got a good solid torch. That counts, you know. Uh, <laughs> you identify as a uh, as a lighthouse liver, so that's 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 close enough. I was go- well. I was going to ask if uh, living in the lighthouse or even near the beach, uh, do you does that inspire a lot of your art, like the ocean, as far as um, um, painting or? Yeah. yeah, I do actually, yeah, yeah, an awful lot of my sculptures are actually fish or lobsters or something, mm-hmm. and a good proportion of paintings in the past. I mainly do wildlife-type paintings, um, including fish, yes. Yeah, so, well, I guess I, you know, always have had interest in the ocean from a small child, collecting shells, wanting to do, you know, marine biology, that sort of thing. Um, but there's not, not an enormous amount of that in the novel because, of course, the, the aliens don't swim around in the sea, they stand on the on the land and they're happy for us to have the sea. But, uh, yes, they want to stand around on the land and um, reforest the world, well, which is a bit, bit tricky. Bring on their visit, I say. Bring on their <laughs> arrival. It doesn't have to be a visit. Like well, that's, that was the theme, you know. Have they saved the earth or are they the enemy? And who gets to decide that? Uh-huh. It's, a, it's not a clear-cut question. I, I don't have any answers. In I was going to say, it sounds yeah. like something that uh, the reader will have to, do. that's a conclusion the reader will have to draw. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm not, I raise all these issues, but I don't, I'm not telling people what to think or what the answer is, but I think people should know or think about things in a different 
way. And that's and not just yell T-shirt slogans at each other, which is what tends to happen through social media. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's meant to be thought-provoking, but not in a, not in a um, you know, lecturing tone, in a, more, in a more comical Douglas Adams type of tone. And, and that's definitely what it comes across as. Def- it certainly doesn't come across as any sort of, uh, you know, authoritarian tone or anything. It, it comes comes across as absolute ball of fun uh, and a real good uh, thinking thinking giggle, if, if that's even a term. But it, it really is, <laughs> it really is intriguing. And I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and be willing to talk about it. Uh, if if there are readers out there that uh, are listening to this, this podcast and they're looking for a bit of sci-fi mixed with a bit of humour and even a few deep themes to chew on, what would be your 30-second pitch to get them across the line and jump on the website and grab a copy of The Return of the Egg Dragsel? Oh, I don't know. If you want to read something a bit different, and apparently it is a bit different, um, a bit thought-provoking, a bit fun, yeah. Um, and if you're into trees and plants and nature and environmentalism, um, you might enjoy it. Um, if not, throw it into the sea or something. Don't get any endangered wildlife with it. No. Well, I, I would recommend anybody who's intrigued or looking to be intrigued by this title to jump on, uh, you know, for example, the Australian Book Office website where you can find a listing of the uh, sto- the novel by Mark Nadal called, once again, The Return of the Egg Drassel. It's in our science fiction genre. So definitely go have a look click on the learn more button and have a good read of the, the long synopsis because look, honestly, it will, I guarantee you, you're going to be very intrigued. And if you are a fan of science fiction and, and you don't mind a bit of humor with it, I, I suspect that this is going to be a very popular option for anyone looking to get their next book that would like to have a bit of a giggle and have a bit of a think as well, because it's definitely a unique premise. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. All the very best for the year ahead. That is 2021. And regardless of the ups and downs that the year may bring, I hope ultimately Ultimately, there's still uh, the continued search for truth. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Darren. Absolute pleasure. And I look forward to possibly doing this once again in the future. Okay. Bye. Take care, Mark. Now, that was an interesting chat with MK Nadal the, the, and all about the Yggdrasil and plants and their place in the world. You covered a lot there. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, huge thank you to Mr. Ndahl for what was a fascinating conversation. And thanks so much for being part of the Australian Book Lovers podcast. And, yeah, so much, I mean, with a with a, a premise like the, the, the one that he has with Return yeah. of the Yggdrasil, of course, it's going to open up so many avenues of thought and discussion. Yes. And the celebrity like, reality with show. Us, with aliens and celebrity, <laughs> celebrity reality show. You could throw that one in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. All right. One of my favourite parts of our show is talking about quotes. So have you got your quotes ready, Darren? I absolutely have some quotes ready. And today I've actually got two. Well, of course, we've got two quotes. But I've chosen two quotes from the same source, from the same gentleman today, just something different. Yeah. And what about you? How did you pick your quotes for today? Well, it was interesting. I gather quotes, as you know, and both of these ones happen to be ones that I already had, but one was by um, a guy called, well, one's anonymous, so, you know, that that's easy. But the other one was by a guy called Brian Aldous, 
um, who is, in fact, if you're not sure, he writes science fiction novels. And people may remember his Haliconia series. So there was Haliconia Spring and Summer and and Winter, I think it was. Did he have Summer? Anyway, Spring, Summer and Winter. And I won't go into those, but his quote is, let me just get it ready, life survives despite an amazingly narrow range of chemical and physical parameters. Parameters subject to fluctuation. There you go. And I think that it builds on what you were mentioning about, you know, the fact that earth and people and everything is so complex and it is amazing that it does and this is what brian is saying that you know an amazingly narrow range of chemical and physical parameters and they can fluctuate and life doesn't survive but it does and without getting into any deep and meaningful chat about you know the origins of the universe and who if there's a god who made god and all Mm. those uh, those wonderful pathways you can find (laughs) yourself lost on Still didn't change the fact that, you know, the, the let's just call it, let's just, the, the planet we're on that we know about, that we can reach out, touch, smell, taste, feel, uh, is put together, you know, at, at microscopic and subatomic levels with such precision that, you know, we're, we're still being marvelled every day. And yet we, st- and yet there's this word called chance that appears mm. that I don't think should appear, you know, oh, it happened by chance or mm. this came by chance. There's no if if you ask me to break down the molecular structure of and the the science behind just one speaker on my desk here, yeah, uh, it would be endless pages. It would involve you know electromagnetism, physics, quantum mechanics, everything you can imagine, yeah. just to explain how the plastic holds together and how sound <laughs> is produced. You know. Yes, that, that that's not these these things don't happen by chance. No. Um, so no. yes, I think you know, but there, that's right. There's everything is so perfectly balanced in the sense of if it's a little bit too hot, we're we're in trouble. If, yes. if it's a little bit too cold, we're, we're in trouble. You know, and I think the the Big Bang theory, all those uh, crazy guys that try and work out everything that happened, you know, one millisecond after the theory of the Big Bang. Uh, they've crunched that many numbers and apparently you know the, the odds of it coming out as as we did were astro- like astronomical <laughs> sorry about the pun yeah. yes, um, yes. but it, you know because we've we, it's the only way it could have been for life anything yeah. else would have meant no life nothing and yeah. so here we are so you know and then one of the theories is well maybe there's been a uh, un, a trillion billion billion zillion big bangs and all of them failed but we're the ones that made it yeah but I mean that is a that's a fair point. But uh, yeah, but I think just the magic and the, and of what holds our reality together I can't just be by chance. And, no, you no, know, no. And no. because it's a set of rules, it can be broken easy too. Yeah, but uh, we have that you know. we have those parameters, and we can work within those. Mm. Tell me one of your quotes. Yeah, just like that. Yeah, marine tank. If you just put the temperature up or down, <laughs> yes. you've got no more fishies to look at. <laughs> um, okay, so my quote uh, is the first of two from Mr. Carl Sagan. So, ah, and the first good. one comes from his book Cos- uh, for Cosmos, and it is, mm-hmm. it is pointless to worry about the possible malevolent intentions of an advanced civilization with whom we might make contact. It is more likely that the mere fact that they have survived so long means they have learned to live with themselves and others. Perhaps our fears about extraterrestrial contact, contact sorry, are merely a projection of our own backwardness and expression of our guilty conscience about our past history. The ravages that have been visited on civilizations only slightly more backward than we. And that was Mr. Carl Sagan from Cosmos. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. 
And kind I like of the thought that. A f- uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go on. I was just going to say, I like the thought that uh, uh, any race that's like way ahead of us, it's better to. I like the idea of them being reached a point where, you know, they've learned to live with everybody. There, there is no reason for war or anything. Mm. Um, I'd like to think that. So that's a. Nice, yeah, nice it, quote. It, it's optimistic, isn't it? And yet it's kind of a reflection of what you. Who was it that you quoted about all politicians should should spend 10 minutes in space looking at the world without any borders? And, you know, our petty grievances are just not that important mm. and that still brings me back to that quote which you so generously reminded me uh told me which book it was from and of course I'm, i can't say it off the top of my head the word for word but about you know if if for only one night the stars sh- you know ah shine. yes from nightfall uh, isaac asimov's nightfall yeah yeah and and just i think that's uh that reminder sometimes i think it's we just don't look at the stars enough yeah, and to be you know to be reminded, to be humbled, to be um, to, to just stand in awe and to be overwhelmed with just absolute magic. Yes, you know, and uh, realize, yeah, just realize that there's a whole lot more than to our existence than reality TV. Yeah, uh, yes, to, to go, to go it can the make a good character in a story. <laughs> That's it. All right, so All right. mine is completely the other way uh, now. This second quote. This is an anonymous one, so if anybody knows who wrote it, by all means let me know. Life is not about whether you survive the storm, it's about how well you dance in the rain. Oh, I like that one. You like that one? <laughs> yes, definitely. So it's still about life, but Some things are beyond the, it's yeah. killed ecosystems, but it's just something a bit different. Yeah, no, I like it because, you know, there are some things beyond our control. Yeah. And uh, you've got to, and to be comfortable with that, I think, is a lesson that... Uh, we all have to learn in life, it's, you know, over and over again. There's always yeah. going to be situations or things that are beyond our control. Yeah. Uh, and how, you, how, and think, how you well know, you dance in the right, what you choose to do with it, it's always the way, isn't it? I mean, if things are going to happen yeah. to everybody, it's how you respond, react, use the lesson, grow, survive, thrive. Yeah, all of those kind of things. So, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, a very good one. And now I've just got visualized, uh, visuals in my mind of me uh, dancing in the rain with fairies in that weird garden <laughs> that you made me think of at the start <laughs> with Tinkerbell fairies. <laughs> ah, very good, very good. All right, what's your second quote? Okay, so my second one, again, is from Mr. Carl Sagan, as I mentioned. Yep. And this one is, uh, to, to, to finish on a bit of a lighthearted note, um, occasionally I get a letter from someone who is in, uh, quote, contact, end quote, with extraterrestrials. I am invited to ask them anything. And so over the years, I've prepared a little list of questions. The extraterrestrials are very advanced, remember? So I ask things like, please provide a short proof of Fermat's last theorem <laughs> or the Goldback conjecture. And then I have to explain what these are because extraterrestrials will not call it Fermat's last theorem. So I write out the simple equation with the exponents. I never get an answer. On the other hand, if I ask something like, should we be good? I almost always get an answer. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Very nice, yes. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek and good on him. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, he was, a, I'm sure, he, you know, he was always wanting to meet an alien, but at the same time, yeah, yeah he, he he did put a good spotlight on, you know, using science and truth to just try and discover things as opposed to go crazy and run off on the tangent of believing every every kooky story um but that's a whole nother it is a whole nother thing and i did love the the people making money off uh pretending to be aliens yes he wrote a book called contact as well which i did read and they then made that into a movie with jodie foster and that was that was well done 
uh, also, and enough science in it that makes you I think... I thought it was a fantastic movie. Yeah, that, that would work. And that's what I was mentioning before about the world has to be right. So it has to be... It can be a stretch of the imagination, but there has to be enough science in it that you go, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that happening. <laughs> yeah, or so far ahead that it's, you know, as what's the saying about, you know, uh, any advanced technology can seem like magic. So there is that as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Nice. And oh, look, we have, we're still on the cusp of quantum computing technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows what sort of world we're going to be living once once that becomes a feasible method of, co- of computation of computing because they i mean they do exist at the moment but that from what i understand they're super expensive very very temperamental mm-hmm. similar to uh, what you mentioned about having a, a very narrow band of uh, of the ability to live yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so but you know in in 100 years or whatever, whatever it might take when quantum computing becomes an everyday element to our life I don't think our life's going to be the same. Uh, no, uh, no. It well, could be a yes. massive pivot. Yeah. We were just saying today, can you imagine, you know, two years ago if you had said that, you know, close to 90% of Australians will be, um, or Victorians even, you know, will be prepared to stay home, work from home, uh, you know, restrict their movement and their kids' movement, all of those to, you know, protect their community from a pandemic – Melbourne people would have said to you, "Get away!" <laughs> so hmm. you do that. Whereas you know, look what we've done, what we've done, and, and look what the rest of Australia and you know around the world are now doing. So, yeah, changes—they're all there. Yes, and and that brings us, I guess, full circle to to the little chat we're having at the start of the show, in the sense that there is changes ahead, and we yes. a little bit of un, uncharted territory, and but we're all in this together, and so it's going to be interesting to see. Where we end up in the next two months, what what Christmas is going to look like oh, for everybody. Yes, um, yes, and I'm hanging yeah. to hug my kids, so yes. Um, so basically, if you want to hear a bit more about quantum mechanics, you may or may not hear about it in the next episode. <laughs> but <laughs> if you did enjoy the show and our chat about books and writing and authors and all sorts of different things, uh, please follow us on Twitter at Australian Books. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Australian Book Lovers and our website where all of these brilliant Australian uh, novels, stories, poetry, uh, memoirs, history, all those uh, on australianbooklovers.com. And, yeah, please log on to your favourite podcast site, give us some stars, give us some words, email us, whatever you like, uh, respond to our comments on our social media. We'd love to hear from you. Even if it is quantum yes. mechanics explained in, you know, 256 characters on Twitter, I challenge you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got thick skin, so for all my tongue-twisting uh, word-tripping today, <laughs> you can uh, write it and uh, just go to town, tear me to shreds. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I know. Yeah, it's been a bit of a tongue-twisting episode for me today. Makes it all uh, the more It's been amazing real, fun. We know that you're not AI. We know that you're not um, an artificial intelligence, so that's okay. Or, or am I just quietly uh, up, up uh, what is it, uh, uploading the latest software uh, version? So I'm currently only got twenty <laughs> so percent CPU <laughs> mental power. Well, <laughs> next episode when <laughs> with my new software upgrade, I'll be back <laughs> better than ever. Oh, no. Very good. I think it's uh, now for our tagline, Veronica. Mm. I'm trying to think. Have we done? Have we been? I know this sounds like a, a Odd question to ask. Mm. Mm. Have we been 
1950s aliens before. Oh, 1950s aliens. Why does it have to be 1950s aliens? I don't know, because we were talking about spaceships and between the the fairies and the me dancing in the rain with Tinkerbell fairies, which uh, is now one little movie right, playing yes. there, I was thinking about all the spaceship <laughs> covers and then that took me back right. to the, like, the cool 50s, yes. 60s yes. sci-fi, uh, you know, trade paperbacks there. Yep, so, yep. and I thought, you know, a modern day alien is probably, you know, it's usually pretty gruesome nowadays. Yeah. So, uh, oh, well. Something back to the ones see, that sort of wobble because for whatever reason their legs don't bend. <laughs> because <laughs> their legs don't bend their voices well that is hilarious uh i don't remember reading that book darren you must lend that one to me <laughs> no you know when you see the, the old uh, black and white sci-fi oh sort of right i'm walk. with you yes 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 yes, yes. well you on, just think of aliens. lost in space with you know that does not compute dr smith you know uh, uh, what is his smith yeah. is here <laughs> I'm sure that you will find a filter that you could put our tagline through Absolutely. that would make it wobble like an alien with non-bendable legs. Non-bendable legs, <laughs> yes, which is how you identify them. So when you're out there in the real, real world, if you see someone wobbling a little bit strangely, um, well, don't assume they're aliens, and it's probably not the nice to go up and ask if they are, because if they are an alien, they're not going to admit it. Well, so no. actually, that's a good way to catch they're them. Undercover. Go up and ask yes. them if they're aliens. And if they say no, that means yes. Oh, dear And then you've caught one. No. Uh, oh, we can do it. So I think maybe uh, at the risk of digging myself a bigger hole yep. <laughs> than, than my tongue twisting's already got, it's time for uh, our tagline. Indeed, because so, the tagline is to remember to... Read, read more Aussie, Aussie books. books. <laughs> I think that's an alien. <laughs> I think yours is more no alien idea, than mine. But... You did well. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for this uh, latest edition of the Australian Book Lovers podcast. Uh, I hope you've uh, had a bit of a small uh, left for your day or your evening or wherever you are, and I really do hope you can join us again for the next one, which will be out real soon. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Let's meet again. When magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds, including people of LGBTQIA communities and their families.